Hello everyone and welcome to Another Plain Truths and this week we're going to be talking about weather. That's quite a broad subject isn't it? Joining me as always is my friend, your friend, it is the legend that is Captain Al. Hi Captain Al. A very good evening Matt. (laughs) Thanks for joining us as always and I'm delighted to say that joining us again this week is the lovely chap that is Dan Holly. Hi Dan. You're too kind Matt. Good evening. How are you? Living life's eternal dream every single day. There we are. So uh, now we can't have uh, access to an actual trained meteorologist uh, and not talk about weather. So the question that I have for you gentlemen this evening is weather how is that data collected and then how is it turned into the charts that i know that al has to use to decide um essentially what route they're going to take uh, you know avoiding things like thunderstorms now this i appreciate this is a really broad subject here but in sort of like languages that very stupid people like me can understand how is the data uh, i know it's obviously it's data that, that that is put together if you like to produce um what you turn into maps but basically what is the process to generate the forecast that we see on the telly yeah so basically we need measurements um that comes obviously from aircraft but also uh, quite a lot from weather balloons um they go up twice a day uh, in many locations around the world there's about five locations in the uk and two in ireland that go up at midnight and midday and, and they measure the the temperature the pressure humidity and so forth at every level going all the way up uh, to the top of the troposphere, which is the lowest layer of the atmosphere where all the weather happens. Um, so you've got weather balloons, you've got aircraft, you've got buoys uh, floating out over the sea, which are constantly taking measurements, land-based weather stations. There's, there's lo- loads of them around uh, many parts of Europe in particular and also parts of North America. Um, and then you've got things like radar data, which is primarily looking at sort of where it's raining. That gets fed into some models satellite data as well constantly monitoring from space all the various things that are going on around the world as well so lots and lots of different data sets they all get fed into essentially a computer model Um, there are many different computer models all run by the different national met agencies uh, around the world as well and and even here at weatherquest we run our own uh, computer model primarily focused on the uk so all of this observational data gets fed into a numerical weather prediction model and basically a bunch of calculations are then run using this data to try and then simulate what the weather will do going forward in time. But we always say your, your forecast is only as good as the data you actually put into it at the beginning. So if you're missing a lot of data right now, then we won't have a clear understanding as to what's going on right now in order to then work out what's going to happen uh, further down the line. So observations are crucial run these calculations forward and ultimately you get some output at the other end again another data set telling you what's going to happen at any location around the world at so many hours further ahead into the future so that data that uh, you've essentially collated and fed into a machine how does how does that then turn into the forecast that that we all see on television and i know you do a little bit of uh, deputizing uh, for our local uh, look east weather here in in the east of england so i mean how how do you go from that data if you like to to predicting what's going to happen say tomorrow yeah so the the data from these computer models comes out they usually run about four times a day So every six hours, we get new data coming in. Um, It comes in what we call grid format or net CDF. They're just basically different formats for data sets. And from that, we can then run scripts to be able to take that data and plot it into a map form, 
so that then we can see what these models are suggesting where the low cloud will be, where the showers and thunderstorms may develop and, and so forth. And then from these maps, we are then able then to see the progression of these weather features uh, across the UK or indeed elsewhere around the world as well. So we would use these these maps that come from the models uh, to make a forecast, both in, in a visual sense, such as on TV, but also then to write them into scripts for radio and, and for newspapers and that sort of thing as well. And, and obviously this data is crucial for other sectors such as agriculture and indeed avi aviation as well. Indeed, and uh, while we're talking about uh, aviation, the, that information presumably is crucial to you, Al, when it comes to deciding where you're going to, uh, what, what route you're going to take, for example, if you're, if you're flying to, let's say, Hungary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, an awful lot of this is delegated to computer flight planning. So there are a variety of elements to be considered. Uh, first of all, the weather at the point of departure, the en route weather, and the weather at the destination. So, for example, the weather at the point of departure, if it's particularly foggy, then there are going to be delays in departure because the number of aircraft movements will be substantially less than in good visibility. Then the en-route weather, well, that's a couple of factors. Uh, optimizing the route to make use of the upper atmosphere winds. So uh, if we can tag along a jet stream, so that will be a, a column of fast moving air that will be pushing us along. So increasing our speed through the air uh, thereby reducing the time and the amount of fuel that we burn. Or conversely, if there are headwinds, trying to minimise the impact that they might take. And as we've talked about in, in other aspects, that's all three-dimensional. So you've got to uh, you know, think vertically and laterally uh, because just deviating you know, 50 or 60 miles laterally could be the difference between a 60-knot headwind and a 10-knot tailwind. And similarly, uh, in, in a vertical profile, uh, then there's a the considerations of significant weather en route. So uh, thunderstorms, uh, turbulence, uh, icing is a, is a big factor, uh, less so for jet aircraft that are typically flying at high altitudes. But when we have to descend uh, into the lower atmosphere, icing is a consideration. And then weather at destination, so whether it be uh, windy, as we've experienced in recent days here in the UK, that can have a, a significant effect. Um, you know, we had uh, last year, we had Storm Kira that had quite a phenomenal effect on uh, aviation in the UK and in the near continent. Um, I was lucky or unlucky, depending on which side of the fence you set on to be flying on one of the days of Storm Kira. So that was quite entertaining, to say the very least. Um, then you have, you know, snow, ice, fog, uh, probably outside of the realms of meteorology of plagues of locusts. Um, but they don't predict locusts, honestly. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, but there are factors that would be reported that are outside of uh, typical meteorology. Um, so um, uh, in Met reports for aviation would be um, smoke. So if you, you know, operating somewhere to an airport that's being adversely affected by smoke, so forest fires or uh, industrial fires, they would be in the Met report. And uh, the Met observations for uh, aviation are done uh, half hourly. 
And as Dan mentioned, the simulations, if you like, the modeling that's done, that's updated four times a day, we use those updates in flight for updated uh, upper winds. So if the wind model changes quite significantly, we'll update those in flight um, so that we get a real-time update as to uh, how the winds are going to affect us for the flight. Typically, typically across Europe, they don't change a lot. Uh, once or twice, they have changed by a couple of minutes in flight time. Um, so yeah, th th there's an awful lot. And uh, ever increasingly at airports these days, observations are actually done by uh, automatic means. So unfortunately, it used to be the job of air traffic controllers to go out and do the MET observations. <laughs> They're increasingly done automatically. But yeah, um, whether and aviation are go hand in glove with each other. It, it's quite a big factor in what we do. And, uh, you know, severe weather is, is a challenge. But so is, you know, forecasting, for example, the location of thunderstorms. I'd imagine, Dan, that's, that's quite a challenge to accurately predict the start and end time and geographic location of a thunderstorm. Yeah, that's right. And and recently in the UK, we've had a, a whole week of active thunderstorms. Um, and, and as you say, trying to pinpoint exactly where they'll form is, is quite crucial. And, and worth uh, stressing, I guess, the models we've talked about here, as I say, every different Met agency runs their own model. And each of those models has slightly different physics that's used, um, slightly different equations. So actually, the output that comes out the other end uh, may differ slightly between each model. So, you know, we look at about 10 different models, I guess, and, and they run every six hours as well. And we are trying to make a forecast from all of these different models and trying to come to some sort of consensus of what the most likely outcome is going to be. But one model may have a thunderstorm over Manchester, for example, whereas another one may have it over Birmingham. So it's trying to, to come up with the, the most likely scenario. Is it going to be Manchester? Is it going to be Birmingham? Or is it somewhere in between? Um, so these models trying to pinpoint where these thunderstorms are. But as a forecaster, you use, uh, I guess, sort of experience over the years as to which of these models tends to handle certain situations better. Um, and then that may sway your, your decision as to which one you perhaps favour to drive the, the story going forward in time. Um, but when it comes to thunderstorms, we often describe it as a bit like uh, a pan of water on, on a stove, for example, on the hob. If you turn the hob on and heat that water, you know bubbles are going to appear at some point, but you don't quite know exactly where the first bubble is going to appear. And it's the same with the with convection and thunderstorms. You know the risk is there. The atmosphere is primed for the, those to develop. You don't quite know exactly where they are. So quite often you're looking for surface features if they're what we call surface-based thunderstorms. And that is that they are driven by what's going on at ground level. So the temperature is rising during the day. Uh, we get what we call wind convergence, which is where... If the surface pattern is quite slack, the winds may come together in certain areas and that coming together of the winds forces some air to rise and that's where you sometimes generate thunderstorms and that's particularly crucial over high ground, for example. You quite often see these showers and storms develop, developing over hills and mountains. Um, so that, that's the main thing you can look at. You can say, yeah, I think the Chilterns probably will develop these today. And then obviously on top of that, you've got to then work out if they develop here, where will the steering winds blow them? And, and will they then drift perhaps close to an airport further down the line? So 
that there's lots to, to play for. And quite often when there are thunderstorms in the forecast, it tends to be a bit more broad brush. You can highlight certain areas where you think they are most likely to, to develop. So certain parts of counties, for example. Um, but you couldn't say specifically, I think there will be one in Manchester at three o'clock in the afternoon. You would probably say something like there's a risk of them between say one o'clock and, and five o'clock. And yeah, one may turn up at three o'clock, but at least you've sort of broadened that risk just in case one were to develop slightly early or, or come in slightly later in the day. Or if you live where we do, you get very excited because it says <laughs> there's going to be thunderstorms and then you get one clap and then that's literally it and you're devastated yep. for the rest of the day. But that's that's the joys of living on the Norfolk Suffolk border, I suspect. Um, so uh, just, just so the... Dan, sorry, sorry, I Go was on. going to say, Dan, how do you feel about whether forecast should be, uh, if you like, the pint glass half full or half empty? Mm. <laughs> because one of the, the challenges that we face in aviation, um, obviously, we, we have uh, coded forecasts because they all go back to teletype machines and, and aviation really hasn't advanced very much. So we're still quite <laughs> regimented in, in, in our coding of uh, Is it like the forecasts. shipping forecast, is it? <laughs> well, very much so, yes. Um, so we have, uh, you know, prob 30, so a 30% chance. So we will quite often see in the forecast for, um, you know, say, for example, just about every airport in the UK, you know, 30% chance of the worst weather that you've ever had in your life. <laughs> and it will be just for every airport. So it's always been, I mean, it's a fine balance, of course, because as a as a forecaster, you know, you're only as good as your last forecast. It's it's a bit like being a pilot and landings. So, you know, we're, we're in the UK, we're very minded of a very, you know, famous weather forecaster who went on, you know, national TV and said, there is no hurricane. It's not going to happen. Oh, poor and, Michael Fish. He'll <laughs> never be allowed to live that down, will he? <laughs> but quite clearly, if he'd gone the other side of the, the pint glass, and said, yeah, absolutely, we, you know, as a country, we're going to be destroyed by this, you know, this hurricane. <laughs> you know, th there is that happy ground in the middle. But one of the risks in being um, unduly negative in forecasting is that you just create this layer of what we call Prob 30 tempo. And we just go, yeah, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's a Prob 30 temporarily. And it's just you might as well just have omitted it from the forecast. So I was just puzzled as if you were a half full or half empty forecaster. I was always taught at the beginning of my career by by Jim, my my uh, old boss, that uh, especially when it comes to the tourism industry, um, Easter in particular, that's like that's considered the beginning of the the sort of tourism season, if you like, in the UK. Um, to always be very careful about how you word the forecast around that time, but really any time during the year, um, and to be sort of unbiased. So, you know, some people may want rain and others may not. So we, we tend not to, to sway either side, really. We just tell it like it is. And if we think there's a risk of showers, yeah, we will mention them, but uh, perhaps not mention them too much. So to make it sound like a negative forecast. Um, but I guess it depends on whether we felt that risk was sort of if there's a 10 percent chance of a shower, then we would heavily stress most places will stay dry and, and miss those showers. Uh, whereas if we felt like there was an 80 percent chance or most of the region would see them, then we would probably go a bit more heavy on, on the shower side of things. So, you know, I can certainly understand whenever you see Prop 30 in your TAFs and so forth that, um, you know, you see that all the time. And so you it almost 
this gets into sort of a cry wolf syndrome, doesn't it? Because you it does. Yeah, I mean, like times. I say, well, an awful lot of the time I just go prop thirty tempo. We'll ignore yeah. that <laughs> um, because what, when if you know, and you will see it, um, you know, just about every UK airport has this, you know, prop thirty tempo, fifteen hundred meters in heavy rain. And you go, yeah. okay, right, but we we can either work on a basis that, you know. We could be exceptionally unlucky and every airport is going to be out of limits <laughs> in the UK. So where are we going to go to? Because they've all got yes. the same forecast. And, and you can't go to France because they're on strike. And yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> Now, the French are quite interesting, actually. The French oh, in their no, aviation I started? forecast, <laughs> um, they will forecast the maximum temperature. Oh, okay. And they will actually give you temperature forecasts for the day, which is quite interesting. Um, And very few other places in the world will do that. But the French are quite good at forecasting temperature. Just a bit of... Yeah. Every day is a school True, day. Yeah. Now, now you've yeah, yeah. you've mentioned this equated way that you receive the data when you're in. So presumably, so presumably, when you're receiving some kind of like, I mean, how do you receive the 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 updates of weather when you're actually in the air? Because um, I mean, presumably you can't get four G signal and and stuff up there. So I mean, how are you receiving the the weather data in flight? Um, well. We're fortunate in that there are satellites, okay. and we're also fortunate that over land masses we have pretty good VHF radio coverage. Um, so we have data link. So, yeah, the aircraft are uh, not connected to the internet per se, um, but we're connected to a commercial organization called CETA, who provide all sorts of data to airlines, and one of the data streams that they provide is, is weather. So via CETA, we can uh, uh, update the uh, on-route winds and we can also get uh, updates of the terminal area forecasts and the METARs, which are the actual MET reports. So the METARs are done uh, every half hour. Uh, In the UK, they're done at 20 past and at 10 to the hour. In other parts of the world, they do them on the hour. And uh, we can also receive uh, the ATIS broadcast as well via data, so uh, we're reasonably well connected. And, and then is there uh, much uh, of a? Do you have, has there been many scenarios where you've actually had to change your route based on the data that you've received in flight? Um, not really, because what we don't have uh, in my airline is the ability to update the significant weather charts uh, because we don't have access to the internet per se. Uh, lots of aircraft do. So uh, Pip at Safe Jets, he's got, you know, the whole singing, whole dancing internet. So he can get uh, real-time updates of significant weather. To be honest, um, in Europe, they don't change an awful lot. I know in the United States, uh, they're a bit more proactive in reporting weather phenomena, especially turbulence. So uh, there's a bit more uh, pilot reporting of weather phenomena there. Um it probably is a bit more relevant if you're flying halfway around the world. And when I used to do that, we would quite routinely, uh, you know, leave somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere having no idea what the forecast was actually going to be for London. Because <laughs> when we were leaving, um, the forecast for our arrival time actually hadn't been produced. Uh, we've got a little bit better in the UK now in that we're producing uh 
and this has only happened probably in about the last 10 years, uh, 24-hour forecasts or 18-hour forecasts for the bigger airports. Uh, most of the forecasts are either 8 or 12 hours. So if you're, if you're doing a, a 10-hour flight and the forecast only has an 8-hour validity, then you can see the issues. Wow. wow. Well, an absolutely fascinating subject. Dan Holly, Captain Alf, thank you very much.